I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. If you live on the Texas-Mexico border, you are aware that Mexico has just held what is considered by observers one of the biggest elections in its history. According to one post-election analyst of the recent Mexican midterm elections, Alejandra Zapata Ojel, opponents of AMLO's Morena party will have to offer a more substantive platform. I think the takeaway message is that it will not be enough for the opposition parties to simply run with the message of we are the opposition to Morena. They literally have nothing else to offer the Mexican public besides that. And as we move closer to 2024, these opposition parties are going to have to come up with ideas and um, an election platform that will convince and inspire Mexicans much more than they have done in this election. Commentator Alejandra Zapata Ojel was just one of several post-election analysts who participated in post-election discussions of the recent Mexican midterm elections hosted by the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. I'm now to turn today's meeting over to your host, Mr. Andrew Redman, the director of the Mexico Institute at Wilson Center. Thank you. You may begin. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm delighted to moderate this morning's Ground Truth Briefing on yesterday's midterm election in Mexico. Yesterday's election, as I'm sure many of you know, was the largest in Mexican history. Voters elected the entire lower house of the Mexican Congress, 15 governors, and a number of state and local positions, about 20,000 in total. Voter turnout was 52%, roughly, which exceeded the 48% of the last election. The initial results show that President López Obrador's Morena party and its allies will retain a majority in the lower house, or diputados, but they will not achieve the two-thirds majority required to amend the Constitution. In the gubernatorial races, Morena and its allies look to have won 10 or 11 of the 15 races. Two are still too close to fall. There are a number of issues to discuss as a result, and we have an excellent panel of experts to help us interpret the results and the short and long-term impact on Mexico and on the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship. During this morning's briefing, uh, those of you participating will have a chance to pose questions, and if you wish to do so, press star one on your phone and you'll be added to the queue, and then at the appropriate time, the operator will open your microphone so you can pose your question. And I'll ask that you keep those questions brief so we can get to as many as possible when we when we move to that phase of this morning's briefing. Joining us this morning, we have Duncan Wood, Vice President for Strategy and New Initiatives at the Wilson Center and a senior advisor to the Mexico Institute. Duncan is also, as many of you know, my immediate predecessor at the Mexico Institute. Uh, Duncan is participating as an official observer of the elections uh, and is joining us from Mexico today. Next, Alexandra Zapata Ojel is a fellow Future Tense Now, an expert at Mexico Como Vamos, and a former adjunct director general at the Mexican Institute for Competitiveness. Carlos Heredia is a global fellow and advisory board member of the Mexico Institute and associate professor at CIDE. And Pamela Starr is a former Wilson Center Public Policy scholar, a fellow at the Center on Public Diplomacy, and a professor at the University of Southern California. Again, just a reminder, if you'd like to pose a question, uh, press star one 
to join the queue. But let's kick it off with you, Duncan. Tell us what you observed on, on election day. What was the mood of the voters? Uh, what was the sense of, of INE, the, the Mexican Electoral Institute? What was the sense from their staff about how, how things went? Thanks, Andrew, and good morning to everybody. Um, it was a, uh, a terrific opportunity yesterday to, uh, to observe Mexican democracy in action. And uh, I have to say that uh, the INE uh, did an incredible job. Uh, it did an incredible job of organizing the election. But I would say more importantly than that, of working with Mexican civil society. And by civil society, I don't mean NGOs. I mean the people on the street who organize themselves. Uh, to run the uh, the polling stations. The INE work hand-in-hand with them in terms of training, in terms of providing them with the resources they need to actually uh, execute a very well-run, fair, free, transparent election. Um, I had the opportunity to travel to uh, around the, uh, the southern part of Mexico City yesterday, visiting five different polling stations. I was there for the, uh, the rapid count in one of them. And... It's an extraordinarily simple process, but it's one that works very, very well. And, you know, that's one of the, I think, the biggest takeaways um, of this uh, this election is that democracy does work in Mexico. I know that a lot of people have had doubts about the, the future of democracy, but it's alive and well. Um, the INE did a great job, as I said, but Mexican civic culture, the culture of democracy is is alive and kicking. And there is great pride on the part of uh, of the Mexican people in their own elections. And part of that, or a large part of that, comes from the fact that they're so intimately involved in it. You know, the fact that Mexico asks its own people to run elections creates a level of buy-in that is uh, you know, very unusual, but it also creates a, a sense of pride in the process. And I think that that's a very, very important factor moving forward. The other thing that I can tell you from what we saw in, in all of the polling stations that we went to uh, was that you know, I spoke to all of the party representatives who were there to observe uh, the voting process, and there was not one single complaint from any of them. And that was a little bit of a surprise, because prior to the election, we had had the chance to meet with all of the major political parties with their secretaries general. And you know, from certain quarters, there was the uh, at least the hint, and in some cases, much more than that, the, the, the blunt statement, that there were concerns about the impartiality of the of the democratic process. But having seen it on the ground, the fact is, is that there were very, very few anomalies. And the anomalies that came out were, were small. It was the fact that perhaps there was uh, an extra representative of the party there, um, more than should have been allowed. Um, in some cases, and this is very common, of course, polling stations opened later than they were supposed to. But in fact, the latest opening that I heard of was uh, 8.45 a.m., you know, which is sort of 45 minutes late, whereas in 2018, you saw polling stations opening two hours late. So the system worked incredibly well yesterday. And I think that is, it's so important because it gives us faith in the result and it gives us faith in the, uh, the strength and the endurance of Mexican democracy looking forward. Great, Duncan. Thank you. That, that, that's a great start. Um, talked, uh, Duncan talked a little bit about the, the process and, and how well it worked. Carlos, what do you think, understanding that the results are, are still preliminary, what do you think the results mean and, and how might they impact the way AMLO will govern for the last three years of his term? 
I think the main message is that uh, voters decided to establish uh, some sort of checks and balances that did not exist for the first three years of the term of uh, President Andrés Manuel López Obrador. So the message was basically uh, the, the Mexican democracy is not a one color only, uh, but it's plural, it's diverse, and all the voices must be heard. So um, Morena was sort of walking towards a greater degree of control of the political system, but the result that we have in front of us talks more of uh, a diversity of actors, and that's good news. The second message is that um, Morena won the election, but not by the constitutional majority that would have allowed it um, to engage into reforms uh, that are put, that were going to be pushed um, regardless of the desire of the majority of Mexicans who wanted this diversity. So the sec that's the second piece of news, that the constitutional majority is not at hand and that we must coexist. There's going to be a process of political cohabitation of the different political actors. But I do acknowledge that it's really a, um, an enormous achievement on the part of the president and his party and his coalition to have ratified their, their absolute majority um, and to have won the election in spite of the Mexican economy being, um, you know, um, going down as it has over the last three years. Uh, the Mexican economy in 2021 is smaller than the Mexican economy in 2018. And also the pandemic, in which there's a, a very fierce debate on, on how many people we have lost because the official figures do not enjoy much credibility. And also in the midst of uh, the systemic violence that we have endured over the last three years. So it's no, no small accomplishment that um, there has been a vote of trust on the president and his project by a plurality, by a, 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 an absolute majority of the voters in the Congress, and that the uh, president's party uh, won probably 10, 11 governorships out of a total of... Uh, um, 15 that were up for grabs. So if I have to sum up uh, what happened uh, yesterday is that it's the search for equilibrium. Thanks, Carlos. It, it sounds like an, another way to put that we talk about in the States a lot is that voters seem to like divided government. They, they seem to like the counterbalance and the obligation uh, for the parties to negotiate a little bit. I think that is the case here. Yeah. Alexandra, turning to you, we've spoken before about the role of women in feminist movements in Mexico. We chatted back around uh, Women's March in, uh, in March of this year. Do you think the results show that there was any sort of a woman's vote, or, or did women vote in a, in a way that had an impact on the results, as far as you can tell? You know, Andrew, I think it's still um, hard to tell at this point, as soon as Results are published in 
with more detail, it'll be interesting to to try to get down uh, and understand if there was a women's vote or not. I think there's two disappointing um, messages from this election in terms of feminist movement. The first one is that Morena won in the state of Guerrero. The state of Guerrero originally had a candidate from Morena who has been accused by multiple women of rape, um, and there was a big impunity argument around this around his candidacy. Eventually, because of electoral reasons, his candidacy was removed, um, and he decided, and Morena allowed him to impose his daughter as the new candidate for the Morena party. And unfortunately, she won in Guerrero, and that's a very strong message against the women's movement across Mexico because it essentially became a national issue. We saw um, references to this election being projected across the Palacio Nacional in Mexico City. And so that um, that result is definitely disappointing. Now, there's another, um, another result that will be interesting, and now I'm getting into the nitty-gritty political, um, how, how the chips will shift around after this election. But there was one person within Morena that lost a lot, and that is probably Claudia Sheinbaum. The fact that one of the biggest losses for Morena was in Mexico City will not reflect well on her, unfortunately. Um, and in Mexico, the, um, the gossip is that the fight for the presidency in 2024 is centered Marcelo Ebrard, uh, and this will definitely be read big hit to Claudia Sheinbaum. Um, I'd like to now move and just make two comments echoing um, what Duncan and Carlos have said already. I think it's very important and the the most powerful message that comes out of this election is uh, the shift in checks and balances and the fact that Morena will no longer, unless um, it reaches agreements uh, with other parties, won't be able to change the constitution without by itself and with its immediate allies. And I think that's very important in terms of democracy and the markets are already reading that in a positive way. Um, it was a big concern and it will definitely change how um, President Lopez Obrador operates or the flexibility that he has moving forward these next three years, um, especially in critical subjects like energy um, and, and um, in institutions around um, democratic life in Mexico. One of the things that he has said in the past, and it's something that Morena has said a lot, is almost this belief that Mexico is already a democracy, so we don't really need the INE. The INE is a waste of money. Mexico already has transparency, so we really don't need the INAI, the Institute of Transparency in Mexico. And those were very um, scary messages that were coming out they would have needed um, a two-thirds majority in Congress to be able to change the Constitution around um, those institutions. But not only do they lose the two-thirds majority, but I think the big victory in this election is the credibility and the strength with which the INE leaves this or, or exits this, um, this election. I think citizens will be trusting INE Citizens will be um, acknowledging the importance of, of INE, and I think that's a very important step in the right direction moving towards 2024. Even the president today in his mañanera acknowledged um, what a positive, democratic, um, and well-managed election 
last night had been. Um, and I think that's a very, very important step in the right direction in terms of talking about Mexico as a continued democracy. And the last thing I will say is it made me very happy as a Mexican to see a very Pacific, um, pe sorry, peaceful and well-run election compared to what we had seen uh, throughout the election process in terms of violence and attacks and intimidation. And yesterday um, was the opposite of that. And as a Mexican, I'm, I'm very happy that it was. Thank you, Alexander. Some, some excellent points that I definitely want us to circle back to. But to, uh, if you'll allow me, even broaden the range of topics a little bit further, Pamela, maybe you could talk a little bit about what the results mean or might mean for the bilateral relationship between Mexico and the U.S especially in light of Vice President Harris's visit tomorrow to Mexico. Do you have any thoughts on what we might expect or whether the, the outcome of the election will have any impact on the meeting tomorrow? Well, there's no doubt that the outcome of the election is good news for U.S.-Mexico relations for a couple of reasons, not the least of which um, for all the reasons that the other speakers have noted that, you know, that this is a, a uh, reinforcement of Mexican democracy. Um, the fact that it was the, the largest um, uh, participation rate of any midterm election since 1997 um, reinforces what everyone else was saying about this strengthening Mexican democracy. And a stronger democracy in Mexico is absolutely within the, in, in the interest of the United States. Um, also, the fact that um, Lopez Obrador's uh, ability to uh, change um, uh, particularly laws relating to protecting of, of private investment and particularly seen it in the energy sector where there's been a potential issue for um, uh, difficulties in the bilateral relationship. Again, to the extent that this mitigates the ability of Lopez Obrador to undertake initiatives that appear to be either unconstitutional or contravene the um, US USMCA agreement um, is, is, is beneficial for the relationship. All that being said, um, Vice President Harris's focus uh, tomorrow is not going to be on those issues, although they may come up privately. Our focus is going to be on, on a migration um, relationship between the United States and Mexico, and specifically looking at Mexico's help in mitigating um, transmigration of Central Americans from um, the, uh, the, the Northern Triangle region um, into the United States. So while this is good news, um, I don't, and, and it may um, help to uh, garner a more positive relationship, um, presuming a positive environment in the meetings tomorrow, presuming that Lopez Obrador does not um, suggest that he's gonna try to challenge some of the results, which apparently he has not done thus far this morning in the Mañanera, um, I think that will um, create a, a better environment for the conversations, but again, I don't think it'll be the focus of the, of the, the meetings. Great, thanks, Pamela. Uh, just a reminder, if you'd like to pose a question to our excellent panelists, if you would press star one on your phone, you would be entered into the queue. Uh, while we're waiting uh, for that, uh, I have many other questions, as I indicated, that have come up throughout our conversation. And, and maybe I'll, I'll circle back first again to Duncan and ask, let's explore a little bit more uh, the reaction of uh, President uh, Lopez Obrador, who during the campaign seemed to be laying the groundwork or expressing some concerns about it, as was alluded to in the panel, some concerns about the integrity of INE. So um, what are your thoughts, Duncan, on the reaction this morning from the president? 
Yeah, I think that it was a, 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 a big surprise for a lot of analysts who had been predicting a much more um, visceral reaction from the president to say that, you know, because he didn't get the, uh, the result that he was hoping for, that he would attack the INE, that he would say perhaps that there was um, that there was fraud or that there was, you know, bad behavior in the election. Um, and that's not what happened at all. And part of that can be explained by the fact that, you know, as Carlos said, he still won, um, you know, and he had a, a, a very good result in terms of the governorships. Um, he maintained his majority in the chamber of deputies. But I think there's something else as well, which is that, um, you know, just having observed the election yesterday and seeing the buy-in of the Mexican people that I talked about earlier on, if you attack the legitimacy of the election uh, this time around, you're attacking the legitimacy of more than a million Mexicans who worked on that election. Um, and that's a pretty tough battle to pick at this point in time. So it's not to say that uh, this story is over. Um, I don't think that the, the conflict between uh, the current Mexican government and certain figures within the INE is going to end. But I think it certainly provides a, a check on, on that for the time being. Um, one thing that I will say is that uh, AMLO's response to in, in saying that these were free and fair elections, that he said there was no intervention by the state. Of course, that helps him to say that he is a, he is a Democrat. Um, his comments on the result, I thought, were really interesting. He said it showed a, a certain level of political maturity on the part of the Mexican people, you know, uh, essentially referencing the checks and balances. But then he very much you know, also tried to, to polarize the conversation um, by saying that this was about two projects. And those who have been following the words of the president and of the Morena party over the past weeks will know exactly how those two projects have been cast. Uh, one is the, the transformation project of the fourth transformation of Morena, you know, a, a project which seeks to change Mexico. The other one is referred to by both the president and his party as the past, a past that is rife with corruption. And so he hasn't gone away from that polarizing rhetoric at this point in time. Another very strange comment that I think he came up with this morning was about you know, organized crime. He said, in general, organized crime behaved itself uh, in this election, um, which is a peculiar way to, to talk about organized crime. And then he made another comment, which says, except for white collar crime, they didn't behave well at all. So again, he is putting out there this, this polarizing rhetoric of the rich versus the poor, and that uh, you know, his project of transformation uh, continues. Thanks, Duncan. Um, Alexander, I don't know if you would want to want to jump in here and, and uh, follow up on on Duncan's comments, or or maybe an, another question I'll pose to you and and to the other panelists is um, often Morena has been described as the the party of AMLO, sort of a, a personalistic party. Um, what do you make of the fact that Morena won oh, 10 or eleven uh, gubernatorial races, which means that their candidates or their their allied parties' candidates will actually govern beyond the end of AMLO's term. So, Alexander, if you want to comment on, on what what this means for Morena, uh, that would be great. Absolutely. Um, and I'm sure everyone that's listening to us has heard um, a little bit about the strength or lack of, of the opposition and what they stand for. And I think that 
one of the messages, takeaway messages from today will also have to be um, in, in terms of the election results from coming out of the states in which Morena basically won almost every single um, gubernatorial race except for just a few. Um, Campeche was won by the Pan Nuevo León, uh, a big election by my Movimiento Ciudadano. That's a big win for for the party. Um, and sorry, I said Campeche is still too close to call. Uh, Querétaro was won by the Pan Nuevo León by Movimiento Ciudadano, and that's basically um, Chihuahua by the Pan. That's basically it. And I think the takeaway message is that it will not be enough for the election part for the opposition parties to simply run with the message of we are the opposition to Morena. They literally had nothing else to offer the Mexican public besides that. And as we move closer to 2024, these opposition parties are going to have to come up with ideas and um, an election platform that will convince and inspire Mexicans much more than they have done in this election. Uh, because again, it's not; it will not be enough, and it, clearly, it wasn't enough in the states to just um, attack President López Obrador and be against Morena. We'll have to see how these, um, how the alliances that, will, that were built during this election. Many um, of these groups were almost um, groups that make no sense. The PAN. Um, and uh, as an ally of the PRI and, and as an ally of, of the PRD, <laughs> joining forces. And I don't know if that will hold for the next election, but it doesn't seem like something that really makes sense. Lots of Mexicans say, you know, the PRI and the corruption of the PRI for so many years and the mistakes that the PAN has made in the past are what brought us to the position where we are today and, and what grew Morena into the huge um, party that, that it is today. And so it'll be interesting to see how those um, alliances play out. And if one of the parties, I think the only party that broke free and ran by itself with a series of proposals was Movimiento Ciudadano. And they won, um, they won Nuevo León and, and we'll see if they win maybe Campeche. But that will be um, something to look forward to um, for the next election. Thanks, Alexandra. Speaking of, of alliances, um, the preliminary results show that the, the Green Party, the Partido Verde, will have uh, an important role, potentially an important role in, in the Congress. And Pamela, maybe you could talk a little bit to how much of a role it will have, and, and maybe for, for folks on the call who maybe are not entirely familiar with, with the Green Party, which is not a Green Party in the perhaps the traditional global sense. Sure. Um, the, the Green Party is going to be in a very important strategic position. Because while Lobos Obrador's coalition did win um, an absolute majority in the Chamber of Deputies, Morena did not win the majority that it currently holds. It won it in alliance with the Labor Party and the Green Party, which is going to give both of these small parties uh, a much uh, a more important role in determining what policies of uh, the, the chamber is going to be or the, the legislation the chamber is going to, going to approve going forward. And this is particularly to the Green Party, which won about 5% of the vote. 
Um, and the Green Party, historically, unlike the Labour Party, which is very much an ideological party, it has its 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 um, its positions quite clear that are somewhat to the left, actually, of locals of the lower. The Green Party really doesn't have an ideological take, much less being a a Green Party. It is a, an opportunistic party that serves the interests of the leaders of the party. Um, it, in the past, has been allied with the PRI. It has been allied with the BUN. Now it's allied with Morena. It allies with whichever party um, is in power. Um, and so it's unclear what price it's going to put on its votes in favor of Morena's um, uh, legislative priorities, um, and particularly the budget, which this morning was a very um, uh, grateful, as he said, he thanked the Mexican people for returning a legislative majority to um, his allies, um, but it's going to uh, make it much harder for him dealing with a party that's not completely devoted to him, much like Morena is, um, and is not necessarily devoted to his project, but is devoted to itself. Um, so, so there'll be interesting negotiations between him and the Green Party going forward. Thank you. Um, and let's um, just stick on, on sort of political parties uh, a bit longer. Um, and Alexander made reference to the Movimiento Ciudadano. Uh, Carlos, could you um, maybe comment on on that on that party? Um, I thought it was interesting that uh, in 2018 the, the Movimiento uh, won the governorship of Jalisco, one of the most important states uh, in terms of the economy, and this time. Juan Nuevo León, another important state for the economy. Is the Movimiento Ciudadano becoming a, a third way between the blocks, or is this something that has more to do with those particular states? Well, um, it's kind of difficult to define Movimiento Ciudadano, but they they say that they, they like to be seen as a social democratic party. Um, but I But I think what's just said is the key to understanding their position. They now have the states of Nuevo Leon, which is the third largest uh, economy in the country after um, Ciudad de Mexico and Estado de Mexico, and Jalisco, which is the fourth largest economy. So, and, and the second and third largest cities of the country, because they also won the mayoral races in uh, Monterrey and Guadalajara. Um, but they have been very pragmatic and very skillful in finding niches. Now, uh, one caveat, uh, even though the leadership may want to look like they're social democratic, in fact, they're also very pragmatic uh, because the winner of the Nuevo Leon governorship is clearly a product of the uh, social media and influencers um, who basically pushed his candidacy beginning with uh, his wife, who has some 2 million followers. Um, so they're very pragmatic in that sense. And that's one piece of information that we must not lose sight of. Uh, now that they have uh, the third and fourth largest states in, in terms of the economy, uh, Nuevo León and Jalisco, Movimiento Ciudadano is prepared to play the role of the um, deciding vote in the Chamber of, of, of Deputies on many issues. Even though Morena has the majority, there will be some votes in which um, 
Morena, uh, Movimiento Ciudadano can vote with Morena. Actually, in, in, during this legislature, uh, most of the time, Movimiento Ciudadano voted with Morena. Um, and there will be other times in which Movimiento Ciudadano will, will side with uh, PRI and PRD. Um, I want to uh, highlight uh, one figure within Movimiento Ciudadano, and this is the former Secretary of Health under Calderón and the former Secretary of Economic Development in the Mexico City government uh, for the last, uh, you know, for the prior administration. And that is uh, Salomón Chertorizky, a, a cadre, um, a technocrat uh, with a social vocation uh, that may lead the, um, the deputies in, in the lower house uh, for Movimiento Ciudadano. And he wants to portray the aspiration of Movimiento Ciudadano to combine both uh, the youth, the knowledge, the expertise, and at the same time, uh, the ability to talk to the voters. Um, so, um, Movimiento Ciudadano won big with with their bet of going it alone, and uh, there are they are a player to reckon with, even if you cannot have uh, certainty on on which way they'll go because they will play uh, all along the pragmatic card. Great, thank you, Carlos. Uh, it's really helpful. A reminder: if you'd like to pose a question, you can press star one, and we have some questions. Uh, so uh, I'm going to ask Pat Otensmeyer from Kansas City Southern to pose the, a question to the panel. The operator will take you off mute. Okay. Can you hear me, Andrew? Yes. Good morning, Pat. Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for hosting this. Just a, a quick question. What, if anything, uh, do does this election foretell about the independence and integrity of the Supreme Court? Great question. Who'd who'd like to take that one on? I I can oh, I can discuss that. Okay, go you ahead, go Pam. you go, Pam. <laughs> go ahead, Pam. Um, and it's it 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 reinforces the independence of the Supreme Court in the sense that um, it'll be hard for Lopez Obrador to say that he has won um, an overwhelming election mandate that would allow him to. Um, win over the votes that he needs in the in the Senate in order to um, get the two thirds that are required to approve a new Supreme Court justice, um, which will be appointed in December of this year, as 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 Justice Frankel will be um, re retiring at the end of November. Um, so it'll make it uh, much more difficult for him to impose somebody that is ideologically um, uh, close to Morena. That being said, um, his close relationship with the president of the Supreme Court um, and the question about whether or not the president's term will be extended um, uh, are still outstanding. That decision will be made by the court itself, and it's unclear when it will make that ruling and how it will rule. So he still has significant influence on the court, um, but his ability to have sort of a hand-picked fifth um, uh, uh, friendly justice will be a little bit harder. Now, if you want to add to that, Carlos. Thanks, Pam. May I, uh, Andrew? Of course. Oh, um, well, I want to. I, I want just to tell a small anecdote. Yesterday, when the Chief Justice went to vote, he faced voters that were very angry at him. 
for only following uh, AMLO's marching orders as they saw it. Um, and um, I, I, what I read uh, between the lines is that uh, the citizens, the voters, also want um, the Supreme Court to, to keep its role of being a player in the checks and balances system. That's why we have the three branches of power. The voters do not want a Supreme Court that follows the dictum of the president, even though uh, he has uh, appointed uh, three of the justices uh, early on on his term. So, so I, I think that the outcome of the election is also uh, good news in that regard, in uh, the Supreme Court keeping its role in the checks and balances uh, in the political system as a whole. Thank you, Carlos. Um, can I add? Sure. Yeah, please. Just a quick comment. Um, on this same point uh, about the Supreme Court, there's a tradition in Mexico, um, and I won't use uh, the slang word, but there's a tradition in Mexico in which laws are passed when Mexicans are not paying attention. And so you'll see announcements being made on a Friday night um, or laws being passed right before um, holidays like Christmas. And something that is right now um, circulating in social media is the fact that the law that extends um, the mandate of President Saldivar in the Supreme Court was was published um, last night in the Diario Oficial de la Federación. And so people are saying, well, everyone was distracted looking at the election results and, and that law was, was published. I still, and maybe I'm being too optimistic, hold a glimmer of hope. Uh, that President Saldivar, even though um, that law has passed, he will decline to stay beyond uh, his original period, but we'll have to see how that plays out. And I absolutely agree about the sentiment in Mexico where um, citizens really want the Supreme Court to, to play that um, checks and balances role uh, within the system. Thanks. Thank you, Alexandra. Um, again, if you have, want to pose a question, we have a few minutes left, star one. Um, but let me pick up on, on something that, that you alluded to, Alexandra, and maybe uh, you and, and um, Pamela might want to respond to this, which is uh, sort of a two-part two question. Um, in terms of how civil society will interpret the results and, and what might happen to uh, NGOs and civil society groups, particularly those that were that were not supportive, have not been supportive of Lopez Obrador. And, and I, the corollary maybe more for you, Pamela, is um, Lopez Obrador had uh, a month or so ago sent a diplomatic note to the embassy complaining about U.S. support for um, a, a particular NGO in Mexico. I'm just wondering what you both think about how what happens with civil society and, and its relationship, uh, civil society NGOs and their relationship with Lopez Obrador. So. Alexandra, did you want to comment on that? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think that civil society is necessarily in a better position um, you know, during for the next three years that than they were um, these first three years. I I don't think that for civil society, and I don't think that necessarily for the press. I mean, 
it was important to have this um, free and fair election, and I think that is a very strong message in terms of of democracy. But I don't foresee that the tone of President Lopez Obrador in the Mañaneras will change. Um, if anything, I think he will probably start getting a little bit more nervous um, as as we move closer to 2024. And I think he will be very, very frustrated when his um, initiatives have a harder time passing in Congress. And I think that will um, result in him lashing out at the private sector, lashing out at the concept of, of checks and balances at civil society, at the press. Um, I hope I'm wrong. And just at the beginning of this conversation, we were saying that we were surprised by um, his tone this morning. I hope we're very pleasantly surprised by his tone for for the next three years. Uh, but I worry we won't. And so I think that's something that will still be a big concern in Mexico moving forward. I was I, as well as many people working in civil society and and the media, were very pleased by the note written um, in response to that ask by President Lopez Obrador confirming uh, the commitment of the U.S. government to uh, helping support organizations fighting corruption in Mexico. I think that was extremely important and a breath of fresh air in terms of uh, civil society feeling that the United States is supporting these causes and, and in some way has our back. Great. Thanks, Pamela. I don't know if, if you'd like to comment on sort of the USG side of, of this equation. Sure. Um, let me just follow up on something that, that Alejandra said that I think is worth noting is to emphasize a little bit more in something else that Duncan mentioned earlier is that the result of this election, Lopez Obrador, um, in effect, declared victory this morning in the beginning of the Mañanera by saying that our, it, was a, it was a choice between two projects, our project won. And I think that's very important because it's, the result of the election is not going to lead to a Lopez Obrador that's less devoted to his fourth transformation of Mexico. He is um, deeply, deeply devoted to that. It may change the tactics that he uses. Um, so I do want to echo what, what Alejandro was saying. I think we're still going to see this um, aggressive tone toward actors that try to obstruct his efforts to move that forward. And that tone is not going to be a positive tone for U.S.-Mexico relations. That being said, the United States under a Biden administration is not going to chastise Lopez Obrador publicly. They may make uh, may express their concerns privately um, with him, but it's not going to be a, a case where the United States is going to uh, criticize Lopez Obrador for um, uh, anything that he's doing um, uh, with regard to the civil society uh, publicly, I don't think. Um, that being said, again, the diplomatic uh, uh, note that he sent to the United States um, complaining about um, uh, treatment of Mexicans against corruption and impunity, um, arguing that they are actually an opposition force, they're not really an NGO in Mexico, um, that note has just been ignored by the United States, and I don't expect it to get any more treatment than that. He may bring it up in the meetings tomorrow with Vice President Harris um, in private, um, but I assume her response will be that um, the United States government stands behind anti-corruption groups um, wherever they're located because it's in the U.S. interest to do so. Right. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take just a, a couple questions from those of you who have joined us this morning. I'm going to hope that, that our panelists can indulge us if we go just a little bit over 
Um, so again, I'd ask when folks uh, ask questions, try to keep them brief and, and the panel will keep their answers brief and we'll see how many we can get through. Uh, and we certainly understand if anyone has to drop uh, since we're gonna go over just a little bit. Let me start with Catherine Schmidt. Hi, good morning. Um, thanks for putting this together. Um, my question is, uh, how do you think this impacts um, Lopez Obrador's drive on energy policy? Um, how is he, how are his plans to move the emphasis back to CFE and by going to be impacted by this, uh, by this result? Who'd like to take that one on? Duncan, you're the expert, but I have something to say about it. Uh, Carlos, why don't you go first and then I'll, I'll jump in after you. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I think that uh, President Lopez, Lopez Obrador's uh, drive in energy policy is, is very much ideological, uh, more than political. I mean, it, everything's political, but he's driven by his notion of the Mexican government having two strong companies, Petróleos Mexicanos and the Electricity uh, company, Comisión Federal de Electricidad, as the axis of the economy, which is a vision that prevailed back in the 1970s, not anymore. Um, so will, he will insist on that. In fact, when he's told that uh, there are commitments within the USMCA, the US-Mexico-Canada agreement, uh, that even though there's not a full-fledged chapter on energy, uh, and the USMCA does state that Mexico and all three countries retain the um, uh, ability to regulate uh, the energy sector, um, the president will insist on his vision of, the, of an energy sector that is based on fossil fuels and not precisely on green energies. So I, I think the result, the outcome of this election does not change much in that regard. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Carlos, 100%. Um, he's committed to the project. Um, and let's just look at the way in which he's behaved up to this point. Um, he hasn't gone from a con for a constitutional reform so far. He was hoping to be able to go for a constitutional reform to repeal the 2013 reform if he got the supermajority in the Chamber of Deputies the second time around. Um, and so what we're going to see is just a continuation of the way in which he's been acting up to this point, which is, Secondary or implementing legislation will be will be passed that will change the legislative framework. But much more importantly, it's all about the regulatory uh, framework and the regulatory environment in Mexico. And so we're seeing the creation of a very uneven playing field in the energy sector in Mexico to privilege those uh, companies, Pemex and CFE, that Carlos mentioned. That is his that is his goal. He was hoping to be more ambitious, but right now I think he'll just continue with his current tactics. We have seen a pattern of behavior of the last three years that tells us exactly what it is that he wants to do and how he's willing to do it. Thanks, Duncan. Uh, now we'll go to Joy Olson, who'd like to pose a question. Hi, this is Joy. Um, Hi, Joy. Uh, hey, Carlos. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, Vice President Harris's visit. And I mean, I, I think these things are always this balance between uh, kind of aspirational values and immediate political realities. And considering that the big political reality in the U.S. is 
his migration. Uh, how, how do you see this playing out? Um, may I? Sure, please. Well, um, I think that the big question up in the air is whether Vice President Kamala Harris will be able to balance the the two uh, main points uh, in the in the visits agenda. Uh, the the first one, of course, being um, persuading Mexico and Guatemala to continue to play the role of of, of containment of northward uh, migration flows, and the second one being uh, to play a role in the uh, local and regional development of uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Um, but I do see a very concrete, a very specific obstacle in the discourse against uh, corruption and impunity um, when you have um, the dilemma of the U.S. government of what to do about uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez, the president of Honduras. Um, that, of course, López Obrador will not discuss that, but it's a dilemma that will be uh, alongside uh, Vice President Harris during the, the, the whole visit. And, and the United States government has to think hard how to uh, reconcile uh, the pursuit of, um, you know, honesty and, and, and um, anti-corruption fights uh, with the fact that they still have uh, a the base they still support uh, somebody like Juan Orlando Hernandez and that there's a, a very strong a strong need for the United States to put in practice what President Biden said when he said he he wants to build a partnership with the peoples of Central America and Mexico and we still are wondering what that will translate into. Thanks. Carlos Duncan, did you want to add anything there? Just something very, very quick is that I think that we're still in the very preliminary stages of the relationship between the Biden administration and, uh, and, and the current Mexican government. And the approach that we've seen so far is that the Biden team wants to build a positive, constructive relationship with AMLO partly because they need him and they need the collaboration on migration, of course. But it's also a, 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 a fundamental um, way of working of, of Biden himself and his team, which is that they think they can do a better job if they actually have a positive relationship. And so I think that we're still in that phase of trying, it's getting to know each other, but it's also about building up a positive rapport down the road, once the if we get to a point where the migration situation is less of a crisis, then we may see more pressure uh, from Washington to Mexico City on a whole range of issues. Um, but I still believe that we're going to go through institutional channel channels. We're not going to see any repetition of the past four years of the Trump administration with sort of aggressive public statements and threats. That's just not the way that this administration works. So I think we're, we're looking at a relationship which is developing. I think her visit this week is very, very important in moving that to the next level. And we'll see what happens, not necessarily on this trip. I don't think we should have too high expectations for this trip. But it's sort of a month, two months down the road once we see how those things are coming together.
It's a great point, Duncan. Thank you. Uh, with just a couple minutes left, we have a question from Christopher Plummer. Yeah. Hi, my name is Christopher Plummer. This is for Alejandra. Um, Alejandra, I worked with your father and mother at Procter & Gamble in Mexico many years ago, so I know them well. To the best of my knowledge, the only proven civil service reform that has worked around the world has been the implementation of universal examinations to enter the federal bureaucracy and lifetime employment. Has there been any movement towards this, either in a generalized understanding of this or an implementation of it in Mexico? Sorry, thank you so much for listening in and what a small world. Um, there is, I, there was the Servicio Social de Carrera in, uh, in Mexico for, I mean, that, that was strengthened various administrations, and I think what we've seen here, and I don't have the latest data as to how it stands right now in terms of uh, of how many people continue to move w within this system uh, through the public administration, but unfortunately, one of the things that Morena has um, rolled back are any type of um, tests and tests that um, allow people to come into government and stay and monitor their performance um, throughout their time in government. One of the things, um, one of the big losses was how Morena rolled back this, uh, these professional evaluations that were uh, implemented within the teachers, um, within the public education system with education reform during Peña Nieto's tenure, and that was rolled back, unfortunately, because it will have a huge impact on education, and it's already having a huge impact on public education in Mexico already. And so um, my my um, opinion is that Morena is absolutely um, against any sort of exam that uh, prioritizes merit over loyalty to the party or loyalty to uh, the leaders in in the main um, positions, and so I don't foresee that we'll see any of that um, in Mexico in the next few years. One of the things that we also haven't seen is is how that plays out in the servicio exterior. Mexico had a very important um, professional servicio exterior, and what we've seen recently are all the uh, big positions being assigned to people close to the president instead of being assigned to uh, to professional uh, people that were already in Relaciones Exteriores. If I can just add something very quickly there, uh, Christopher, you know, the, the reforms are one thing. What The most important factor impacting the Mexican public service over the last three years has, of course, been Republican austerity. The slashing of, uh, of salaries, the clearing out of some of the higher echelons of the of the Mexican bureaucracy and the loss of the institutional memory and knowledge skill set that was there. We see a Mexican public service today that is weakened significantly, that has much less bandwidth to do the things that it needs to do. 
And we see this at almost every level. And of course, it impacts uh, the Mexican public in terms of the services that they are that they expect. It impacts uh, business in terms of regulation. Uh, it even impacts uh, uh, foreign affairs, where you see just a reduced bandwidth on the part of Mexican uh, raciones exteriores to engage in meaningful conversations with their counterparts. So I think that I don't see the Republican austerity, the cuts that have been enacted by the by AMLO and his team, change in the immediate future. Thank you, Duncan. That such reform, you know, the state being the laboratory of democracy. Thanks, everybody. Um, we are out of time, unfortunately. Uh, if you'd like more information about the midterm election, including commentary posted before and, and commentary that will be posted uh, soon, please check out our midterm election webpage, which you can access through wilsoncenter.org. I want to thank the our panelists this morning for their excellent insights and commentary. I know we certainly could have gone on much longer with this conversation. And I want to thank all of you for joining us this morning for, for what I think, again, was a really great conversation. And thank you all very much. Thanks, uh, Andrew, and thanks to the uh, Mexico Institute and the Wilson Center. For your information, AMLO's morning post-election press conference of June the 7th is available in Spanish on YouTube. I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service.